for some churches, last week would have been a once-in-a-lifetime experience, but it seems like Sundays like last Sunday are pretty common around North Boulevard. I don't say that to brag. I'm just I'm so excited to be with you guys. I'm so happy to be with you guys. I'm happy to be part of this family. We raised um, nearly two and a half times what we were asking for, which is a pretty big deal. I got a letter yesterday. Uh, this is from West Campus. I got a letter yesterday from someone who I don't know them, but they've been watching us online, not, not from here in uh, Murfreesboro. And they just said, you know, they appreciated what North Boulevard was doing. And unless you told me, which I don't, I don't think anyone else has, but unless you told me, I don't know what you pledged. It's not my business. It, I won't know unless you tell me. Um, but this person said, we just wanted you to know that we sent in a pledge for $50,000. That's somebody who's not even a member at North Boulevard, which just shows, again, I think when you, when you focus on the gospel, God says, okay, take a step, and I'll provide you what you need. Um, the big, big Sunday and the groundbreaking, I think the equipment will be out there and start plowing up the ground here in the next few weeks. And uh, if, if things go the way we hope, by December of 2023, we should be doing a grand opening out there at the West Campus. I do want you to know there was so much more money than what we expected that the leadership will sit down, try to figure out the best way to spend it. But every dollar that's given will go towards one of the three. This is actually our West Campus. Some of the young women there getting ready to set up the children's wing a church planters conference for domestic church planting, and then some of what we've done in our disciple-making movements in the global south. I'm really proud of you guys, and I'm really grateful to God. Now, as I said earlier, I'm not going to make every sermon about my health, and we're not going to drag all my health issues into all of our services. But I do feel obligated to say to you one more time, I have a surgery coming up, God willing, on April the 8th. They intend to remove the left kidney left adrenal, and possibly the spleen. And between now and then, I'm supposed to do two things. One of them is not touch you. So we have a bubble around me right now. We don't want me to catch any kind of infection or anything that would delay that surgery. And then second, so I've had the cough, and they've said that the cough's going to make recovery much more difficult. So I'm supposed to stop coughing. And... Um, <laughs> Yeah. So when I asked, uh, asked the ENT, I said, what do I do to stop coughing? He says, well, the best thing you can do is stop talking because talking produces the coughing. And Donna, you know, he doesn't know many ministers. Uh, that's not going to be a really good option for me. But I will say I am actually trying to talk a little bit less because it is true. The less I talk, the less likely I am to cough. And if we can get the cough healed when I'm in recovery, it'll just be a whole lot better uh, than, than if I'm not. So if I look like I'm avoiding you, it's not personal. And if Julie rushes me out and people, uh, <laughs> we asked somebody last week at the groundbreaking, uh, the security team just to make sure that, you know, people don't run up and hug me so I don't catch an infection. And I, I'm not joking. I think they had like six guys packing guns around me the whole time, everywhere I walked. <laughs> I was like, well, oh my goodness, what have I done? It's just a hug. It's not something more serious than that. Um, anyway, so if you see that, don't let it bother you. And then we'll see what happens after April the 8th. I've had the opportunity to baptize people from all walks of life. I, I remember only one time that I baptized a woman of the night, we'll say, who, who had um, very active at, um, <laughs> I don't want to say the word, although it'll probably come out before it's over with. She was pregnant and 19 years old. I got involved because a friend of mine had 
family had taken her in. So here's a real short version of the story. She grew up with a father, uh, with a, when she was young, let me get my story right, when she was young, her father committed suicide. Her mother had decided that the only way her mother could feel loved was to sell herself. She became a drug addict. And so the daughter, by the time the daughter was around 14 or 15, she was following in the steps of her mother. She was selling her body and she was also addicted to heroin back then it would have been. This was some years back. She had gotten a temp job and she was assigned to a plant where uh, my friend worked and that's how I got connected. And she began to come on to my friend who was married and had four children. And he said to her pretty shortly after she was working there, look, this is not gonna happen, but something else can. And so he invited her to join a group of them for a Bible study that they were doing on their lunch break. And over the course of the next several weeks, she began to fall in love with Jesus. So he spoke to his wife, had her over, they spent some time trying to disciple her. And finally, the man and his wife and the four children invited the woman to come live with them as she tried to become clean and sober. But by the way, I would just say, in, in a lot of cases, it takes disciple making that intensive to help someone really come out of where they, uh, where they actually are. Over the course of several months, she really did change her life. She dropped her addiction. She dropped her dangerous, reckless behavior. And uh, by the time I became involved in it, she was ready to become a Christian. So I remember we met one afternoon and we were talking about what baptism means. And just before we came in to be, for me to baptize her, she asked me the question or made the exclamation. She said, I just didn't think that God could love somebody like me. Does he? The question has haunted me through the years. What makes a person feel so bad, so far from God or so unlovely that they really doubt whether God loves them? I've said this before, I think most teenagers and young 20-somethings who lose their faith in God, they don't lose their faith because they were studying science and through science they decided that Genesis wasn't accurate. That, that rarely happens. They lose their faith because they experience an intense pain that they can't reconcile with a good God and so they just have to give up on God. Some of you grew up in homes where they were relatively loveless homes. Uh, you might have been passed around yourself as a child from grandmother to foster home or whatever. Some of you might have done okay and then some diagnosis knocks you off your feet or some failure in life occurs. Someone who swore to be faithful to you till death do us part walks away from you and betrays you. And I can tell you that even if you don't have low self-esteem, there are times in life where most of us are knocked so breathless that one of the first questions that we're forced to ask is, does, does he really love me? Because we preach so much about the goodness of God and the love of God, but there are times that the spirit is willing, the head believes it, but the heart has its doubts. I was thinking about that as I was working on a lesson for this week. This text came to mind, but then a living illustration immediately came to mind thereafter, where Paul says in Romans 8, I'm convinced that nothing, you can read what he says, 
Neither death nor life, angels or demons, the present, the future, powers, height, depth, anything else can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What I know about that is you can actually know that with your mind but not feel it in your gut, especially when you most desperately need to feel it. And so God actually gives us a real life living example of what his love looks like in the Old Testament with a prophet named Hosea. I want to read from Hosea chapter 3 and verse 1 through 5. It's only five verses in the whole chapter. So actually I'd inspire, I'd like to ask you to open up your book, inspire you to open up your book, if you will, open up your Bible to Hosea 3. So if you're wondering where it is, it's almost halfway through your Bible, just past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and uh, Daniel. Well, the next prophet there is the prophet Hosea. And Hosea has not just a message about the love of God, but he actually becomes a role model for how the love of God works. Just a little history. Israel has divided into two kingdoms by the time Hosea is preaching. He's in the 8th century before Christ. So we're talking about the 740s or the 730s before Christ. Hosea is one of the only prophets who actually preaches to the northern kingdom. When Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom instantly went pagan and never really came out of it. The southern kingdom would go pagan a while and then go back to the true God and vacillate enough that the southern kingdom lasted well over 100 years, almost 150 years longer than the northern. But the northern kingdom instantly went pagan. And God sends Hosea to the northern kingdom, especially to its capital, Samaria, which is actually in a lovely spot in the northern part of the Judean hills, or we would call the mountains, actually fairly good-sized hills. And God sends Hosea here to do three things. These are the three things that all Old Testament prophets do. He goes to say, you're sinning and God cares. And second, there's a punishment to come because of sin. Sin always brings its own punishment. But then, as all the prophets do, he says, if you come back to me, I'll take you back because I love you. Here's a list of some of the sins. You can read from chapters 4 to 14. It's almost just an unending list of the sins of the people of God. There's no faithfulness, no love, no acknowledgement of God in the land. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. On the horizon in the 8th century was the Assyrian Empire, and God would eventually use the Assyrian Empire to destroy the northern kingdom. In the years 722 and 721, the Assyrian army came in from the north down to Samaria. In fact, I show this picture with my son in it again. These are the northern hills just above Samaria. And in the year 722 BC, the Israelites opened their eyes and looked over the walls to see thousands of Assyrian soldiers laying siege to the city. And Samaria was so thoroughly destroyed that today you can walk through, as you see, you walk through its, its ruins. So God was ready to destroy Israel, but he wanted Israel to get one last shot at repentance. And this is where we get the lesson of how God's love actually works. And it's important to remind ourselves that we're about to see an amazing life story that's premised on the fact that God created you only so he could love you. That God will judge us. We probably need to preach on that maybe even more than we do. God cares about what we do. 
But God's chosen relationship to us above all others and foundational beneath all others is that God is our Father. He's our dad. And anything he does for us, he does in the way a dad would do for a son whom he loves. So God calls Hosea to be the prophet. But God doesn't just say, I want you to preach about this. God actually says to Hosea, I need you to go marry. It appears that the word that's used in the Hebrew language is a word for prostitute, but it may just mean promiscuous woman. God says, I want you to go marry a prostitute because I want the Israelites to know what it feels like to be their God. I just want you to imagine for a moment what a, what a challenge this would have been for a minister. Imagine one of our most righteous men here, one of our elders, maybe a staff member. Imagine if they suddenly came in and said, look, God has told me I have to marry this well-known prostitute. It would be a real challenge for us to get our brains around that. God says, I want you to marry a prostitute because I want the Israelites to understand how I feel when I watch them worship Baal and Asherah. And he takes it a step further. He says, I want you to have some children by this prostitute, and we're going to name each child something that indicates what Israel has done. So the first child, he says, We'll call Jezreel. There's a lot going on in this that I'm not going to get into, but it simply means I'm going to scatter you around the world for your sins. We'll have a daughter, Lo Ruchamah, and her name will mean I don't love you anymore. And then we'll have a third child, a son. We'll call him Lo Ami, which means you're not my people anymore. What God is saying to Hosea is, I need you to be a real-time, real-life, flesh-and-blood illustration of how much it hurts to be the God of a faithless people. Now, if the story had ended there, it would just be a really sad story, but it doesn't. And that takes us to chapter 3. We're going to walk through and see that God does all of this because he has really, at the end of the day, only one ambition, and that is to love you. So verse 1, chapter 3, the Lord said to me, go show your love to your wife again. We don't know exactly what happened here because in chapter 2, between chapters 1, where we get the first story about the prostitute, whose name, by the way, I haven't said yet because her name is just so ill-fitting for the 21st century here in the U.S. Her name is Gomer. And uh, when we hear the name, of course, we giggled because we think of the television program. But her name was a serious name. It appears that Gomer actually left Hosea after they had the children and went back to prostitution. And so God says, go show your love to your wife again, though she's loved by another and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites. Don't miss this one. Love her the way I love Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love the, these are sacrificial cakes, and love these sacrificial cakes. The first thing I want you to see about the love of God in this text is that God chooses to show his love to the least lovely person in Israel. That's right. I, I want to underscore that because each of us has our reason sometimes occasionally, and sometimes perennially, to wonder if God loves me. 
Like if you're suffering from clinical depression and it just never ends, so I've told y'all that I've had, uh, I was diagnosed with depression back 2008. And I will tell you, there were, in my case, it la- I don't really, I can't remember. I suppressed a lot of the memories. Maybe it lasted a year. I'm not sure, give or take. But I can tell you there were days where I thought, this is the end. Where picking up a toothbrush felt like I was lifting a 50-pound bag of cement where I was just, I felt done. And all I could think of was, and I was preaching by the way, like I was preaching to you guys when I was, when I was in this state of mind. And all I could think of was, I must be the most unlovely person on planet earth. Even if, you, even if your self-esteem is pretty healthy, when you think about your sins, if you're really honest, it's hard not to say, I'm just not worthy of God's love. I know my secret sins. I know the things I've done in the past. I know the things that I've preached against that I also committed. It's really hard to think, why would he love me? But the book of Hosea is a living witness. God said to Hosea, pick the worst one you could find so that people will know that I'm willing to love all of you. I'll take any one of you. God is just showing in Hosea's choice of Gomer that nobody is beyond the reach of a loving God. And that whatever we do, we still have a God who relates to us ultimately at the end of the day as a dad. I'll read the next verse, verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and about a homer and a letic of barley. This, uh, the homer and letic of barley is somewhere in the vicinity of 300 kilos of food, we'll say. With the 15 shekels of silver, based on what we read in Exodus chapter 21, that was about the price of a slave, something around 30 shekels of silver. Do you remember that's how Judas sold out Jesus for that amount? What God is literally saying to Hosea is, you married a prostitute, you had children, then she ran off again after you married her. Now I want you to go buy her back, bring her back. And that just demonstrates to me this second truth, which is God pays the price for our unfaithfulness. You know, that is the gospel. The gospel is that, the gospel is that Jesus died for the world, but it's better than that. The gospel is Jesus died for me, not just for sin in general, not just for the idea of sin, not just for some abstract concept that we might talk of as sinfulness, but the thing I did, he died for that thing. He paid the price for that so that I wouldn't have to pay the price for that. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 5, at just the right time, when we were powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Look at this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And since we got the diagnosis, I have found a lot of um, comfort in some of the old hymns that I used to sing as a child growing up. I want to say that I'm part of the team that picks the songs for North Boulevard right now, and I like what we're singing, so I'm, we need to stay the course of what we're doing. But I will say, when your foundations are shaken, sometimes your brain goes back to the old hymns. 
looking down the pew and seeing mama sing. And um, there's some kind of a soothing thing that occurs when you sing or hum or hear those again. And one of the songs that's come back to me that I can remember hearing mama sing, mama had a beautiful voice, by the way, is the old song from the 18th century, Rock of Ages. There's a sense in which that song to me, at times didn't seem all that attractive, but wow, it sure has lately. I think about the second verse. Y'all know the song, every American should know it. Rock of ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. And then the second verse. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill the law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to thee for dress. Helpless, I look to thee for grace. While I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. It's just the expression of what Hosea is trying to teach us. That the good news is, We're not good enough for God. But he rendered that irrelevant by paying the price of our sins, not in general, but specific for your sin and the person of Jesus Christ. While we were sinners, he died for us. And then we read verses 3 and 4. So then uh, Hosea says to Gomer, I told her, You're to live with me many days. You're not to be a prostitute or act intimate with any man. I will behave the same way towards you. So what he's saying is we're going to have to put you in a quarantine. You're going to have to be on probation. He's gone and he's married a prostitute. They've had children. She ran away. Now he's gone and bought her back. And he says you have to be on probation. For the Israelites will live many days without a king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or household gods. In other words, Israel's going to have to be punished. There's going to be a form of discipline. And actually, to me, this is one of the sweetest points of the book of Hosea, which is this. God loves me enough to discipline me. Now, I've raised two children, Julie and I have. And I can tell you the hardest thing we ever did was to discipline our children. It It was the most loving thing we ever did. Because it's not easy. The easiest thing to do would be to let it slide. You know, I, would, I, I can remember going to work when Julie would be home with the kids. And I would just pray all day, Lord, don't let the kids do anything that makes Julie tell me I have to do something about my kids when I get home. <laughs> I don't want to think about it. But if you really love your children, discipline is how you craft them into what God designed them to become. So in Hebrews chapter 12, we've been working through Hebrews. Listen how the Hebrew writer speaks about the sufferings that we go through, the diagnoses we receive, the hardships, the failures, the abandonments. He says this, have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses a son? This is encouragement. Discipline is a form of encouragement. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. I want to pause before I read the rest of this. 
Because it's a complex thing to talk about why we suffer. There are times that we suffer because we did foolish things. It would be unfair to blame God. For someone who got drunk, got out on the highway, and ran into a telephone pole, it would be foolish to blame God for that. Sometimes we just make foolish choices. In Scripture, at least several times, the devil afflicted somebody with some form of suffering. And sometimes in the Bible, it's God who does it. Now, what we want to do as humans is we want to figure out which one caused this suffering. Is this from God? Is this from the devil? Is this something stupid? Is this just a consequence of a broken world? What's going on here? And I want to save you from having to worry about that. Because actually what's more important than that is that you understand whoever caused the suffering, God is going to use it for discipline because he loves you. I have to say, to be diagnosed with cancer is a real shocking thing to hear, especially when you have no family history of it. But I've not felt an ounce of resentment towards God. I'm not special. I'm no more special than you are. Why should, why should I be treated differently? And furthermore, I understand that we broke the world and cells are supposed to multiply. They're just not supposed to multiply that quickly. This is just a consequence of a broken world. And some of the sweetest mercy I felt. I mean, the thing that I'm most grateful for right now, apart from my family, is that actually I know God is, He's going to use this to discipline me. I feel the way I felt towards my dad growing up. My daddy had four wild boys, and he had to discipline us a lot. And you know, I never resented it. Daddy, I still don't resent it. I look at it as, I realize he didn't like it. He hated it. I remember seeing him tear up at the thought that he was going to have to discipline me. And I realized he's not doing this because he hates me. He's doing this because he wants me to be good. In fact, put it this way. God disciplines us in order that we may share in his holiness. Marlena Summer told me one time when she was diagnosed with cancer, she said, David, I see things you'll never see. I see beauty you don't see. I rediscovered what's most important in my life. I know how to value every single day now. In so many ways, God can take whatever it is and discipline us so that we share in his holiness. That's what's going on in the story of Hosea and Gomer. And God can still do that. That's what he does. And he, he wants us to share in his holiness but it does require that we close some chapters in our lives. Throughout the book of Hosea, we're called to return to the Lord, to repent. That is, it's not right to say you're diagnosed with this disease because you committed that sin. Remember, Jesus says it's not one, one, I don't think that way. But it is right to say that when you're diagnosed with this disease, that's the perfect time to search your soul and say, Lord, what would you like from me? to finally get rid of once and for all. What was the part of me that shouldn't have been there anyway? And in that sense, it's a perfect opportunity to repent and to take one more step towards the holiness of God. So if you find yourself in that position, repentance is the right thing to do. Close the chapter and open the next. Now we're going to finish our chapter 3 of Hosea. Afterward, the, afterwards, 
The Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessings in the last days. Here's, in a lot of ways, this is the only word that I care about in this sentence. That God's love always offers us hope. It always offers us an afterward. Like when you reach the concluding chapter of the life of you on this planet, you actually have only read the preface of what's going to be an eternal life with Jesus in the hereafter. There's always an afterward for the people of God because he always holds out hope. In fact, Hosea is structured in this odd way. If you read the book, you'll see it. It's sometimes it's almost disorienting to see how quickly Hosea will go from a judgment statement to a statement of hope as though God, it, here's what it feels like. It feels like God is saying, get out. I can't stand your unfaithfulness anymore. Get out. And before you can walk out the door, he's saying, come back. That's, God is saying that. Look, here's just one example. This is back in chapter one. So after Gomer had weaned Lohrukmah, Gomer had another son. The Lord said, let's call him not my people, for you are not my people and I am not your God. He's not even finished the breath before he says, I didn't, I didn't cut anything out between these sentences. Before he can finish saying, you're not my people, he says, yet you'll be like the sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. It's like God is saying, you're no longer my people, wait, come back. I'm not going to give up on you. God holds out an afterward for us, and it's an endless afterward. It's a hopeful afterward. It's a promise. It's found throughout Hosea. Y'all, I've been so emotional since this diagnosis. And so I, I'm trying not to choke up on you. But I want to tell you, a text like Hosea 2 would make me choke up without a diagnosis. All these hopeful texts of the Hebrew prophets are to me the sweetest texts of the Scripture. So we're in chapter 2, just before the text that we've been reading. And the Lord is talking to Israel, and he's saying, I'm gonna, the Assyrians are going to haul you off. You're going to go into captivity. You, many of you are going to die. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be a long seizure, a besieging of the city. It took over a year. People starved to death. It was, it was horrible, horrible what happens. But then he wants them to know there's always an afterward. Listen to it in chapter 2. I will allure you. That is, I'm going I'm to bring you back. I'm going to lead you back to the wilderness. I'm going to speak tenderly to you again. I'm not done with you. I will give you back your vineyards. I will make your valley of the shadow of death now a door of hope. And you're going to respond to me like you did the day we got married. He keeps going. In that day, you're going to call me your husband and no longer your master. He says, I'm going to make a deal with all the cows so that you have more calves than you know what to do with. I'm going to make a deal with the birds so you have more chicken than you know what to do with. I'm going to make a deal with all the creatures that move along the ground. None of them's going to hurt you. I'm going to bring an end to all wars, not just in Ukraine, but the spiritual battles that we have to fight here. And now it's all going to end and you're going to put your head on your pillow and you're going to sleep. I'll marry you forever and you'll know I'm your husband. 
in that day, he says, I'll speak to the skies and they'll speak to the earth and the earth will send out olive oil. It'll send out vineyards. It'll send out crops and you won't be the one who's scattered. Instead, it'll be the produce scattered and bounty around you. I will plant you forever. I'll show my love to you. Though your name once was not my loved one, I'll start calling you again, my people. And you'll say, my God. Isn't that amazing? That in a text where God is listing all the heinous sins and predicting a judgment against them, he can stop and say, but, but don't forget, I always have an afterward. My love doesn't give up. My love never ends. I'm not going to stop loving you. That's how the love of God works. None of you is beyond it. None of you has done anything so bad that God would say, well, I'm done with you. None of us is so far from God that we can't come back and say, we be my God again. And none of us is so in love that God wouldn't say, I already paid for that sin. You don't know on that one. I paid for it. I heard a story a couple of years ago in 2013. A fabric mill in Troy, Tennessee, it's in northwest Tennessee, up in, I think it's in Obion, Obion County, went out of business and it was the biggest employee, employer, I should say, in the area. Put a lot of people out of work. There was a woman by the name of Leellen Smith. She had been working, she's a member of the church up there, by the way. She had been working with uh, a recovery ministry and when the plant closed, it affected everybody. It affected everybody's pop pocketbooks and it's made life that much harder. She kind of started asking, is there anything we can do to help these people who already are struggling with addictions and all sorts of emotional and spiritual problems? And she had been sewing for, um, well, since she was a kid. So she came up with the idea, why don't we get the people who don't have a job right now, people who are really struggling, and those who actually have addictions, who are in recovery, who are really trying to get back on their feet, why don't we just do what the plant used to do? Let's just, let's do something with fabric. That'll change the world. So she started a business called Outside In. Now, I want you to know I've never met her and she's not asked me to promote her material. But I do want to show you some images. What she did was she said to the community, will you bring us whatever clothes you no longer want? No matter how ugly it is, no matter how torn it might be, no matter how dated it might look, bring it, will you bring it to us? And what they do is they take all of these clothing donations and they turn them all inside out and they reconstruct them as these beautiful bags. I think they've done clothes and dresses and so forth. And people have gotten jobs now. They get paychecks off of this. When they reach a profit, it's a, it's a nonprofit organization. When they reach a profit, they send the money over to an orphanage they often even provide dresses for women in developing worlds who maybe couldn't afford one otherwise. In the interview that I saw where this came up, uh, the interviewer asked her, what do you do with all the fabric that's left over that you can't use? And she said, oh, we use all of it. We use everything. She says, when it comes to us, no matter how ugly, how ragged, how rejected, how old it looks, 
we're going to use it for something good. Oh my, isn't that what the love of God does? When the church finally overcame 300 years of persecution in the year 325, 300 years of persecution, the emperor became at least nominally a Christian, Constantine. And he had a big meeting in western Turkey, and he invited all the, all the bishops, all the ministers, all the elders from the churches all over the world to come in for this meeting. One of the historians who lived during that time described the meeting. He said, it was something to behold. These broken men, some with their eyes gouged out from the persecution, with feet missing, with scars all over their bodies, they came in from all over the world as a homecoming to sing praises to a God who would not give up on them. We have the same privilege, the same God, and the same love of God in our lives. So stand up, and together we'll sing praises to the love of God.